Welcome back. I'm Shane McClelland. I'm Lori Gum. And these are the Q Files. In the second part of The Last Supper, we'll continue on our somewhat odd historical and culinary investigation of what has become known as The Last Meal. This time, thankfully, without any notion of SpaghettiOs. Dear God, thank you. After our dinner of main courses, we headed on to dessert and the last meal of one of the most notorious killers and American-born terrorists known to us in the last 25 years. Here is our next course. Again, this was an entire meal ordered. Mint chocolate chip, simply mint chocolate chip. Do you know who this is? Shane? I don't know. You don't know who it is? I don't think so. It's like Jeffrey Dahmer or something. Timothy McVeigh. Timothy McVeigh. Okay. Well, executed in 2001, of course, for the bombing of the... Oklahoma... Yeah, the Murrow building. Yeah. Um, Interestingly enough, when we were talking about Victor... Figuar, who had the the olive, he was the last prisoner executed before it became unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. Timothy McVeigh was the next one. Oh wow! So Timothy McVeigh was the first person since 1965. Really? To be executed? I did not know that. Yeah. Federal. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. That's pretty good. Now you know. Ice cream as a last meal makes sense to me. Yeah. Like, desserts in general, really. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, like, the, like I, you're making coffee and everything, but, like, some good ice cream and a coffee. I can see that. What's wrong with the world? Mm-hmm. Except that you're going to die in three hours, but... I don't know. A bottle of red wine. pack of cigarettes. <laughs> like, I... And an olive. I mean, it, that might. My last meal would include a cigarette. Well, you know, obviously Eichmann's the only one that got a bottle of wine. It's much more European sensibility. You, you cannot request alcohol in the United States for a last. Well, I mean, hell, even just a cigarette and coffee. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, in just a minute, we're going to talk about someone that just had a cup of coffee. <laughs> And I get that too. Mm-hmm. So far, I totally get the request for the last meals we've had, except for one. Goddamn spaghettios! <laughs> <laughs> you deserve to be put down. I will make an exception. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! All right. So this is our next last meal, is a good old cup of coffee. Just a cup of coffee. That's it. Bye. You know who this is? I don't. Eileen Warnos. Oh, never mind. I did know that. Yes. Eileen Warnos. <laughs> um, which is really interesting. Um, yes, yeah, she just ordered a cup of coffee. And, you know, many of you, many of you may know 
well, most of you do, Eileen Warnos was officially documented by the FBI as the first female serial killer. Uh, of course, the subject of the movie, Monster. Yeah, you know I have my own Eileen Warnos story. You, you have shared that with me. I became aware of Eileen Warnos in the early 90s. Her story struck me. She was being tried in several different trials for the murder of seven men. Her initial story was compelling. She was indeed a sex worker in Florida, but had fought back when her clients tried to abuse her violently and sadistically. In 1989, Warnos claimed her first victim, Richard Mallory, 51, an electronic store owner from Clearwater, who had picked her up for sexual favors and then bound her, poured lighter fluid in her eyes, and tried to sodomize her. Mallory did have a history of sexual violence. In 1957, he reportedly broke into a Maryland woman's home, grabbed her from behind, and tried to assault her. He pleaded insanity and got off with 10 years. Eileen Warnos pulled out a pistol, shot him twice in the chest, and issued him a new sentence. I sent money to her defense fund and received back one of the most odd and then quickly treasured items I have ever gotten. It was a big yellow smiley face pen. It looked cheerful enough until you looked very, very close. And then you could see that instead of a solid black line making out the image of the smiley smile, it was instead words. And those words said, Evil fucking planet. Whoever was doing marketing for her defense fund, well, hats off to you. Evil fucking planet indeed. Warnos had been dealt a very rough hand by the world and life. She never met her father, as he was incarcerated at the time of her birth. Leo Del Pittman was diagnosed with schizophrenia and later convicted of sex crimes against children, and he committed suicide by hanging in prison in 1969. Abandoned by her mother at the age of four, she was turned over to her alcoholic grandparents, her grandfather physically beating her, sexually assaulting her, and even turning her over to several of his friends to do with as they pleased. She became pregnant at 14. Warnos gave birth to a boy at a home for unwed mothers in 1971, and the child was placed for adoption. At 14, she ran away from her grandparents' home and would live in the woods, alone, off and on until she was an adult. With no other alternative, she turned to sex work to support herself for the next 15 years. Eventually, when she was 30, she fell in love with a woman, Tyria Moore, 24. Eileen claimed she was head over heels in love with Tyria and would do anything to keep her. Tyria disapproved of Eileen's prostitution, saying, Once I found out she was prostituting, I tried everything I could to have her stop doing that. For one, it's not safe, because then I did care about her, but she never, ever gave it up. Warnos was indeed engaging men, particularly along the interstates of Florida, a very dangerous endeavor. After Warnos killed her first victim, the abusive Richard Mallory, she came home and then confessed the murder to Tyria, who said she just didn't want to know. But what Warnos and arguably Moore eventually realized was that not only was there a victim, there was a wallet and a car. Murder would quickly become quite profitable. Six murders later, all of them Warnos claimed were in self-defense, on January 9, 1991, she was apprehended. 
Moore was eventually apprehended too and talked into collaborating with police for immunity. She was set up in a motel in Daytona and given the task of making calls to Warnos and pleading for her to admit that she had killed the men alone and that she, Moore, had nothing to do with it. The calls were, of course, being taped by the police. By the sixth call, Eileen assured Ty that she would not let her go to jail. And on January 16th, Eileen confessed to the murders of seven men and expressly stated that Ty was innocent. Tyria Moore had done what was asked of her. No Ethel Rosenberg here. But yet, a kiss on the cheek sounds oddly familiar. During her trials, the only time Eileen Warnos broke down was when the court played the recordings of those phone calls as part of the evidence. Honestly, it's heartbreaking to watch. Regardless of her guilt, it's tough getting busted and betrayed by the only person you have ever loved. In June 1992, Warnos officially pleaded guilty to the murders, and in November 1992, she received her fifth death sentence. She was incarcerated at the Florida Department of Corrections Broward Correctional Institution death row for women until she could be transferred to the Florida State Prison for execution. So, sometime in 1993, I decided to pick up the phone. I dialed the Broward Correctional Institution and asked to speak to Eileen Warnos. They told me that I needed to fill out some paperwork and fax it back to them, and then I would be given a specific time to call. I did as they asked and called when they said to call. They answered and told me to hold for a few moments. I waited. Yeah? A raspy voice answered. Is this Eileen, I said. Yeah, what do you want? Well, I stammered, my name is Lori, and I just, I want you to know that there's a lot of us out here, you know, women and, well, lesbians who, well, we feel for you and, and, and well, understand that you were in a bad situation. I, I just want you to know that. Okay, she said, unimpressed. Listen, I said, what can I do for you? I mean, what is one thing I can do to make one day of your life better? Just, just a little better. Well, she thought for a moment, you could send me a carton of cigarettes and maybe $25. That goes a long way in here. Done, I said. And, and get the cheap cigs. Don't bother with the pricey ones. No need. What did you say your name was again? Lori, I said. Okay, Lori. Take care of yourself, okay? Then the phone went dead. I sent her $50 and a carton of Marlboros. The pricey ones. If you ask me why I did that, well, to this day, I am not really sure. She had such a damn shitty life, and I felt for her, I really did. I know her victims were fathers and sons and brothers and friends of many who no doubt suffered from their deaths. I don't deny that, and I don't absolve her of that. But for once, Highway John's picking up $5 tricks along the interstate were in as much danger as sex workers face every day. You know, I shouldn't say it, but. Well, I won't say it, but you get my drift. When Warnos's execution took place on October 9, 2002 at 9.30 a.m., I closed my door and turned down the lights and just sat silent. I quietly petitioned the universe to somehow stop the misery, abuse, destitution, and anger that had characterized Warnos's entire life 
and also consequently ended up taking seven more. Simply put, hurt people hurt people. And I think we really need to sincerely understand that. And I'll always have a soft spot for Eileen. Which brings us to our next little tidbit here. This has been sitting on the table all mm -hmm. evening. It is a little um, dish full of Jolly Ranchers. Because Gerald Lee Mitchell, who was executed in 2001 in Texas, only ordered Jolly Ranchers for his last meal. Just Jolly Ranchers? Just in his last statement, he was going to the Lord, so he said, please shed tears of happiness for me. Now, I do. See, Dolly Ranchers are good. I do remember I had those as a kid. <laughs> but even some of these, we were talking, the, the fake tastes of them. Oh, it's, it's, yeah, it's just fruit-flavored candy. Okay. Are you ready? For what? For a Dolly Rancher? Are death-defying. Oh no, the thing is gonna kill me? The thing's gonna kill you. Okay, yes. I'm ready to die. Are you ready? Yeah. Because it only makes sense that our last meal dinner would include something that is known to be extremely toxic if not prepared correctly. Perfect. The nice thing is I did not prepare this myself. <laughs> This is just I, I you. Let, I let an expert do it. This is you killing me after you talked about Eileen Warnos and how much you admire her. Yes. Oh, good point, Shane. Good point. Touche. Touche. All right. You know what those are? Are they like lima beans? They look like lima beans, don't they? <laughs> they do. They are <clears throat> lupini beans. Okay, I don't know what that is. Okay. <laughs> Lupini beans are notoriously toxic. As a matter of fact, this species of wolf is named Lupini something. Uh -huh. It was a sheep killer, so sheep would eat them. Notoriously toxic. And the only way that these can be made non-toxic is to rinse and to rinse and keep in salt and do all that. Um, people known to die from uh -huh. you know, Lupini beans. But here's the myth in the story. Well, first of all... <clears throat> I guarantee you out there in listener land, the only people who are going to know who Lupini bean, what Lupini beans are, are Italian Americans who remember their grandfather sitting outside on the porch, shucking these the shell, and taking a bite of Lupini bean and spitting it to the curb. It was like a old Italian grandfather snack. Okay. And in a lot of bars, Italian bars, they would have lupini beans with your beer, like we have peanuts. Yeah. Okay? So here's the story. There are three wonderful stories about lupini beans. Okay. I will start with the first that is most applicable to our um, story tonight. When Jesus went to the garden after the Last Supper, um, he, it, was, it was a garden that was beside a field of lupini beans. Okay? Okay. So Jesus is trying to hide, and the lupini beans rustle so that Judas and the Romans can find him. Yeah. 
So Jesus condemned the lupini beans to be toxic. And supposedly, you will never, if you would eat a million of these, they would never satisfy your appetite. Wow. Okay? Uh-huh. Now, there's another story that we are going to remember when we do Twelfth Night. Uh-huh. When Mary was hiding from Herod with baby Jesus, she went in a bean, a lupini field beans, a beans, a lupini bean field, and what happened? Russell, Russell, Russell. They tried to fink out Mary, too. They betrayed her again. They betrayed her, too. But the best part of the story is this. You know what these are supposed to be, really? What? So during the crucifixion on Golgotha, okay? Golgotha Uh with the, the cross. The rocks that were below the cross, that held the cross up, up on Christ's death turned into lupini beans. So that's like the other piece of lore? Mm-hmm. And so you're supposed to squeeze them? Okay. Well, these might be these might be shelled already. So be squeezed. I don't think... Oh, it yeah, <laughs> ah, went my boot. There you go. It's kind of like edamame. Just kind of squeeze it. So I'm going to squeeze it out of a little shell? Uh-huh. See here? This comes off. I'm, I'm gonna, nervous now. I'm gonna wait until you eat it so that if we die, we both. Well, squirted it in my eye. Huh. I go blind. I got it. Okay. Are you ready? I guess. Ready to die? Let's hope these people, whoever I bought this from at my Middle Eastern grocery. It doesn't smell like poison. Tastes better than SpaghettiOs. Sure as hell, Dutch. This is gonna be a weird statement. Kind of reminds me of like mozzarella cheese, like fresh mozzarella cheese or something. Mm, interesting. It's a little salty, but like, it's more firm than that. But you know, I don't know. I get why people would eat it. It's like snacking on sunflower seeds. Yeah. But it's like an old Italian grandfather thing. Hmm. So, so <laughs> when Jesus is in the garden. So Jesus is in the garden. The beans are betraying him. They rustled. Listen. That's my my that's my dry lupini beans. <laughs> but I haven't had the I'm afraid to fix them myself. So it has a double whammy around the last supper, be, you know, the crucifixion, because it uh it, it was the rocks at Golgotha, and it was it finked him out. And Judas found him, and then Judas kissed him and turned him over to the Romans. Now, here's my other question that I, I don't quite understand. Uh-huh. If this bean tasted like incredible, you can understand spending three weeks to turn these from being toxic. But why would you work that much for a bean that tastes like this? I mean, it's okay. Kind of addictive. Here's the thing. It's good. It is good. Um, it's unique. Has it does remind story. me of edamame in a way. Edamame. Texture. The texture, yeah. I still think the flavor. Maybe not mozzarella cheese. There maybe is, it's like string cheese. There is a cheesy taste to this. If you would give this to me. Yeah. And, and I hadn't seen it mm-hmm. and closed my eyes. I might think it was some kind of cheese. Yeah. Like, I don't know. 
I feel like it's just like one of those foods that people like sit around eating and like talking. It is. And it's exactly it. And no one knows why it happens. Don't do that. So once presuming if it's in the store in a jar that says ready to eat. Um, Hopefully. Otherwise we've just eaten a lethal amount. This will be our last supper. <laughs> and I joke, I just got my first COVID shot yesterday, so. <laughs> Make it through all this and die from a bean. <laughs> a goddamn lupini bean. If that happens, I want it on my gravestone. That's Yeah, no, that's fine. That's... <laughs> But they say you can tell. God damn, Loopy. They do say you can taste the toxicity. So if it's bitter, it's toxic. If it's not bitter, you're okay. Well, I just took a swig of coffee, so it's bitter. (laughs) (laughs) We'll find out that some combination of coffee and Loopy beans is what killed you. (laughs) That's what it is. (laughs) <laughs> Jesus was loaded up on coffee and lupini beans. But they're just, as far as plants go, they're a bastard plant. Man, they're betraying everybody. It's like, Seriously. don't hide in the lupini bean field. Like, I, I don't even... <laughs> like, what did these plants do? <laughs> they rustled. They rustled. It sounded like that. And they'd move those, those beans would move in their pods. Yeah, but like... <laughs> Who was writing down these stories and was just like, fuck these lupini beans. <laughs> like, maybe someone just really didn't like them. Well, I think it was Jesus that said, fuck these lupini beans. <laughs> I mean, like, specifically it was Jesus. But it was like... Jesus. He was like, fuck this. Bastard fucking beans. Anyway, I think that I thought that was a perfect denouement. Uh, for our uh, last supper. And so we survived our bastard lupini bean adventure, yet we still had a toast of blessing with which to end the evening. Oh, so, oh, we got to get, there's one more. There's one more. I forgot. One more. Pour some wine here. So we have not done an official toast. No, we have not. No. I have a lupini bean stuck in my throat. It's the poison. I'll choke on a lupini bean. That's the poison. That's, that's how it'll happen. Okay. Shall we toast? This is Odell Barnes Jr., who was executed on March 1st, 2000 in Texas. His last meal request. Justice, equality, and world peace. Well, I'll drink to that. There you go. His last statement is worth noting. I'd like to send great love to all my family members, my supporters, my attorneys, for they have all supported me through this time. I thank you for proving my innocence, although it has not been acknowledged by the courts. May you continue in the struggle and may you change all that's been done here today and in the past. Life has not been that good to me, but I believe that now, after meeting so many people who support me in this, that all things will come to an end, and may this be fruit of better judgments for the future. That's all I have to say. Wow.
In the end, the Last Supper was most important for the fact that it established the Holy Eucharist, or Communion, a Christian religious ritual that is celebrated by Catholics and most Protestant faiths today. As it is written in the New Testament book of John, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it, and he gave to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and gave thanks, and gave to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many unto remission of sins. It is indeed oddly cannibalistic, and maybe even belongs back in our Donner Dinner Party episode. But nonetheless, Jesus, with his message of love, charity, and forgiveness, might he also be suggesting that we are all of one flesh, and we are all of one blood. That the flesh of our human brothers and sisters is also wounded when one is assaulted or even killed. Might that one blood that is spilled be a reminder to us that, like the early Americans, a crime committed, whether it be by an individual or the state, demands a reconciliation of the entire community. That we are all implicated and stand guilty for the pain it caused and stand collectively accountable for the human landscape that allowed it to happen. It is a radical, cosmic concept to consider. One has to wonder, in all of our tales of those who committed horrific acts upon other human beings, might there have been a moment in those lives that a kind word, a kind gesture, an act of love from a parent, sibling, child, friend, neighbor, or, or even a stranger? Just one generous act might have changed the trajectory of their lives and consequently the lives of those they murdered. It might be a naive concept, but if we all start making crime our own collective responsibility and turn to our own communities for some form of restorative justice, maybe we can make a change. More prisons and more executions will not benefit any of us. As it has been said, an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. Maybe that is the real human message of Easter and the Last Supper. And just for a moment, might we begin to imagine a world without another last meal. This show was created and produced by me, Shane McClelland, and Lori Gum. Until next time, friends. Be weird. Stay curious. These are the Q-Files. Oh, and hey, while you're here, check out a message from our friends, the Ghost Story Guys. Hi, I'm Brennan Store. I'm Paul Bestel. We're the Ghost Story Guys, and every two weeks we bring you true life stories of the paranormal, told with humor, humanity, and just a pinch of skepticism. Well, to be fair, I'm not aware of many incidents involving people flashing ghosts. No, not intentionally, at least. I mean, I'm sure my, you know, my, my family has looked down on me or up at me in some cases and thought, okay, put, put some pants on, would you? <laughs> just, just why? Other people have to sit on that couch. Whether you're a true believer or you think all this ghost stuff is bullshit, but you still like scary stories, odds are we've got something for you. It's a big tent and everyone's welcome. As long as they don't mind the odd four-letter word. Fuck, for example. Shit like that. 
You can find us at ghoststoryguys.com, instagram.com slash theghoststoryguys, or by searching for the ghost story guys everywhere. Find podcast lift.